Turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> if you don't know what we've been doing uh, for the last few weeks is a verse-by-verse study from the book of books, from the book of Romans. It's an interesting read. It's a dynamic read. It's a powerful read. But it's very much essential to the believer today to understand the contents that Paul received from the Holy Spirit himself. Um, and before I get into it, um, let me just encourage you to please, uh, how many of you are still reading through your Bibles? Amen. I'm not looking, I'm not looking. <clears throat> please, I encourage you to continue to do so. Um, you know as well as I do that when we get into the Word of God, God brings about His growth in our lives, right? And we definitely want to develop according to God's will, and His will is found in His Word. The second thing that I wanted to point out before beginning uh, with our message this morning is that, to my surprise and to the surprise of uh, a number of you as well, um, Janine as well, she was present, uh, Clancy, how many know Clancy Cabrera? Is she here, by the way? Is Clancy here? No, I don't see her in the classroom. Okay, well, this past week she received a text, supposedly from me, from a crazy, crazy random number, asking her to go to Walmart and purchase this uh, a $300 gift card in my name and to send it, to scratch the back of the card, you know, the number, the code, and to send the code to this other number in my name. And she almost went through it. She couldn't get a hold of me because I was out riding my bike and she got a hold of my wife and my wife told her, no, no, that's not, that's not Rick. That's not Rick. Listen, I don't know who it is. I, obviously, it's not somebody from here. It could be somebody in some other country for that matter. I would never ask you to send anybody any money. You got it? So don't go thinking, well, why is Pastor Rick asking me to send $300 to so-and-so? I will never ask you to do anything like that. So if you receive a text like that, dismiss it and pray against that devil. Amen? Pray against that thing because it's not of God. <clears throat> Read with me, please. Um, we're going to try to cover in the next hmm, 40 minutes, maybe 45 minutes, <clears throat> the... You said somebody, somebody says 35. Now, I don't appreciate that at all. I don't appreciate the fact that you guys are comfortable with a half hour of, of, of God's Word. I don't like that at all. Because I know some of you sit in front of the television watching, um, what's this guy's name? Um, Mick. Huh? Yeah, that, that person. The one you're thinking about. And you listen to an hour of that message, huh? Well, you're going to listen to an hour of my message this morning. Amen, somebody. We're going to try to at least cover the first 16 verses of this text. Read with me, please. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. If you have it, say amen. amen. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who <laughs> oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I love that word. That's one of my favorite, favorite words in all the Bible. Justified. Declared righteous. When God puts His finger upon your life because of, because of faith in Christ Jesus, and He, he, he just delivers us and sets us, sets us free. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you so much this morning once again. I thank you personally that we are a praying church. I thank you, Father God, that we believe in this place, we believe in a personal and intimate relationship with you through prayer. We pray that at this moment, Lord God, that you may, that you may unpack the truths from your word to us. We need to hear from you, Lord God. I pray that you may help me with your grace and that you may give me the strength to convey publicly what you have revealed to me in secret. We are hungry, Lord God. Feed us at this time. We look to you in faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. As you can tell, I'm still wrestling with this thing, whatever it is. It's been, it's been a long time. For me personally, since I first read this particular passage. Uh, but I, I, I remember that when I first read this passage, I asked myself the question, what in the world is Paul the Apostle talking about? It's a lot of, a lot of complicated sentence structure in this one particular text. So it's not the confusing part. It's not so much about the content of the passage. It is about the way Paul the Apostle actually took the time to present the context. In literature, the term is called the diatribe. Linda, you're familiar with that? Aren't you a teacher? The diatribe, right? You've heard of it? <laughs> She's saying, go on, just, just, just go on with your message. It's called the diatribe. And in this one particular passage, Paul the Apostle, he, 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 he sets up his sentence structures in a very unique way. For one, he goes, he uses a question and answer uh, construction of sentences. He also uses a lot of hypotheticals, rhetorical questions, 
etc. So in order for you and I to begin to even understand this one particular chapter, what I want to do first is I want to talk a little bit about what he mentions in the previous chapter. In Romans chapter 1, Paul the Apostle, he presents the reader with an indictment of sin. And if you're taking any notes, these verses, these verses are found in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. I'm not going to read those. You could put them down um, in your notes if you'd like. But he presents the reader with an indictment of sin. And then what he goes on to do is that he lists, he presents the reader with a long list of sins. And although the particular offenses that he mentions, that he lists in that chapter, they were mainly committed by Gentiles. The point he was making is that all mankind is guilty of being a sinner. Because we all possess the nature, the sinful nature. Every single one of us do. And for whatever reason, the religious Roman Jews who were reading this one particular letter, because they were observing the law, they felt as if, well, those sins that he mentioned in that first chapter, they don't apply to us. We're not necessarily guilty of those particular offenses. So I don't know what this guy thinks he's talking about. He's certainly not addressing me. See, they were religious in nature and they failed to realize that because of it, they were actually opposing the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the fact that salvation is only available to you and I through the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, notice the language that he uses in this one particular verse. He, he seemingly jumps right into an argument with an opponent. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, old man. It's sort of like an imaginary opponent, if you will. And it's called the diatribe. diatribe. And he, throughout this entire book, he uses that. He borrows from that genre, if you will. Paul the Apostle goes on. I want you to note, look at verse 17 with me. Because I want you to see, you're not going to see it in these first few verses, that he's actually talking or addressing the religious Jews. But I want you to see that. In verse 17, it says, just a portion of the verse, it says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, dot, dot, dot. And the succeeding verses follow that genre, if you will. The context, rather. That Paul the Apostle was addressing the religious Jews in Rome who, for all intents and purposes, opposed the gospel truth as was readily received by the Gentiles. And notice the context here in this one particular verse. Um, he indicts them. He says to them, you are guilty of judging others. Essentially, you are guilty, you, you are guilty of judging those who are not like you. The religious Jews in Rome were pointing a finger towards the Gentiles who were guilty in their minds of this, these excessive sins that were listed in Romans chapter 1. Which wasn't necessarily the case. In many cases it, it, it was true, but they felt they were better than because they were observing the law. 
And Paul the, Paul the Apostle, under the strong inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made sure to address this issue right off the bat. No, it didn't take place in the first chapter, but it took place soon enough in his letter to the Romans. Because it was a problem. Think in terms of how religion interferes with the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. The, the religion actually runs totally contrary to biblical truth, to the fundamentals of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those of us who are religious, those, who are, those of us who perhaps live according to some tradition, some ceremony, something that has been perpetuated over a long period of time, if we live according to that, it's going to hinder us from truly realizing the fundamentals of the gospel. Religion binds, doesn't it not? Religion doesn't set, set you free. Religion doesn't have the capacity to free us in any way, shape, or form. And that is the context of this one particular chapter. He says, verse 1 continues. He says, you have no excuse, O man. Then he goes on to say, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. What's the point? The point is that they failed to realize that they were just like the Gentiles they were seeking to condemn. Because we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the very nature that we all possess. And so in application is that you and I never have the right to point the finger at somebody else. And isn't it like religious folk today to walk around? We want, this is, this is, this is us, this is us. This is us on a bad day. This is us on a bad day. Not a good day, a bad day. And we don't necessarily involve ourselves in the lives of the people around us. We're not a congregation of one. We are a congregation of many. The last time I checked, the numbers, I think we are a congregation of at least 110. Right? That means we are family. We are a community of believers. And we all must recognize the need for one another. We're not all at the same place spiritually, right? Some of us just started this journey a few weeks ago. In the case of Angie and Chewy, who are not here, they'll be here soon enough, I believe. They've been in the faith for a couple, a couple of months. Now, his love and his devotion is contagious. It's evident, right? We could all know, but he's only been saved a couple of months. But it doesn't mean he's less than the rest of us. And for whatever reason, the, Jose said, amen, amen. So don't look down on me. Don't look down on me. That's what he just said right there. So for whatever reason, the Roman religious Jews, they had a problem with the Gentiles around them. The letter wasn't only written to, Rome, um, to the Jews. It was written to the community of believers in Rome. So what is the context? Moral people are guilty too. Moral people are guilty too. Let's move on. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
It's fascinating when, when, I, when I read that because religion does not allow me to realize my need for Jesus Christ. And therefore, ultimately, it doesn't allow me to realize the fact that the judgment of God rests upon me. If I don't know Jesus Christ and yet I'm a good person or I'm living according to my own standard, then I'm not going to bring myself to a place where I believe that God's judgment rests upon my shoulders in no way, shape or form. Look at me. I'm, I'm better than you. That's what religion compels us to declare. That's the voice of religion, isn't it? I'm better than you. Listen, you're beside me. We can't hang out today. And we do that sometimes. Paul the Apostle was trying to get this group of individuals to realize that they were just as sinners as everybody else. That's the context here in this one particular passage. He says, God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. And the Roman religious Jews were saying, well, we, we're not guilty of those one particular sins. And Paul the Apostle has to say, listen, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm trying to convince you of your need for Jesus Christ. I'm trying to convince you that you are just as a sinner and you need to repent. And unless you do so, you will likewise perish. The author of, the author of Hebrews chapter 2 Chapter 2, verse 3, I believe it is, in that neighborhood. Some of you, somebody correct me. I, I think it says, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The point is that from the very beginning, God has been wooing mankind or drawing mankind to himself. At, at least trying to do so. How many know that God loves us? He loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And there's one passage, God was using the Apostle Paul to reach a nation of people. To reach the Romans, every single one of them. God was drawing the masses to himself through this one particular servant of God. And this one particular group failed to realize the need because they were religious. Because they were religious. I got something here I want to read on that note. <clears throat> Did you know that the cross can never truly be appreciated until sin, is until sin is recognized? I'm going to read it again. Did you know that the cross can never truly be appreciated until sin is recognized? It may sound a little controversial to you, um, depending on where you are with your thoughts. But that was the fundamental problem with these individuals. They failed to see the need for Jesus because they did not recognize themselves to be sinners. Some people say that Satan's greatest deception is causing people to believe he doesn't exist. Have you heard that before? I say his greatest success is causing people to believe that sin is not real. That's Satan's greatest success. People do not go to hell because they refuse to believe in God. People go to hell because of their unwillingness to resolve the issue of sin in their lives. That's what it comes down to. One of the things that Paul the Apostle goes on to allude to in this one particular passage in the later verses, um, we'll get to it when we get to it, but I want to make note of it at least briefly here. And it's the fact that every single one of us have a conscience. Every soul on earth has a conscience. And nobody has to convince you of the existence of God. Because you know it yourself. 
Isn't that true? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God's law has been written on our hearts. I have a conscience. I lived like a devil before I came to Jesus Christ. And one day I opened my eyes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in a prison cell because I was convicted of my sin. And yet in the midst of my mess, there was never a time when I was, when I was unaware of God's existence. I didn't need my parents to tell me that God existed. There isn't a soul on the planet that requires that. That's what the Bible makes, it, makes clear to me, especially in this one particular chapter. We'll read those verses soon enough. But these people had a conscience. They knew they were wrong. They knew they had to repent of their sins. And Paul was having a dialogue with them or a monologue because it's a letter. Trying to get them to understand. Look at verse 3 with me. <clears throat> it says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Notice the issue is with sin. The issue is with sin. Because mankind has always been unwilling to give an account to God. Of his or her life. We've always been that way. We default to it. Even in the church. All of mankind defaults to that. We don't want to give an account to God. It doesn't come easy. And so what happens is that we end up subscribing to religion, to customs and traditions. And those things eventually and ultimately hinder the work of God in our lives. One of the things that we talked about in, in the previous chapter is how God gave ample opportunity For his readers to come to Christ. And isn't that so true about you and I today? How God always presents us with ample opportunities to realize our need for him. By exposing sin in our lives. Isn't that true? Verse 4 reads. It says, So do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience... Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Amazing. God is calling all of mankind to repentance. He deals with us. He tolerates us in so many areas of our lives. He calls upon us. He speaks to us in the middle of the night. He, he, gives us a, he, he inspires somebody to call us, to write us, to text us, to email us. Somehow, some way, God is always communicating His intentions to save our souls. Paul the Apostle borrows from things he wrote in the previous chapter when he alludes to the idea that no one is ignorant of God's existence and that we are all aware of His calling. Go to chapter 1 with me for a moment. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 1. Look with me to verses 19 and 20. And it reads, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Who is he talking to or talking about? He's talking about sinful man. He's talking about man in general, man who's apart from God. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How so? For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, wow, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. 
It's a bold statement. And that's the context that he repeats over and over again in this one particular chapter. Man is without excuse. He said it to those who were Gentiles and in sin and knew they were in sin in, Genesis, in, um, in Romans chapter 1. And he repeats it in this chapter to those who were religious and considered themselves to be a group of individuals not in need. They weren't going to be judged by God. There, there was no wrath from the Lord upon their lives. Look at me. I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm not like so and so. He says, we are all without excuse. Just considering the time, I want to move along. I want to just skip some of this. Let me ask you something. And be honest. Do you remember the years in your life when you resisted God's calling upon you? You remember those years? Remember how many times the Lord had to try to get your attention? I remember how many times he tried to get my attention. I mean, countless times. And I refused every time. And it wasn't until a prison cell when I finally opened my eyes. <clears throat> and so sometimes, even today, what I do is I try to remember. I don't glorify sin and I certainly don't want to remember the, the specifics of my life that are under the blood of Jesus Christ. But when I consider my past in some general sense, it helps to keep my heart contrite before God. Because it helps me appreciate what my Jesus Christ endured for me before and after he was crucified. I mean, my Jesus and your Jesus. If, let me see your hand. Do you know Jesus? Let me see your hand if you know Jesus. Listen, our Jesus, he went through some stuff for you and I. And it's imperative that you and I retain a contrite heart or a contrite spirit so that we don't lose sight. Of our need for Jesus Christ on our lives daily. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> this is what happens to someone whose heart is not contrite. It says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Can you imagine how these people must have felt when they read this? said, this guy is talking directly to us. Who in the world does he think he is? I'm sure the religious people didn't appreciate it. Right? They were like, Paul, Paul, we don't appreciate your tone. We don't appreciate your language. We don't appreciate the things that you're saying about us. We don't appreciate you putting down our Judeo values. As if we're wrong in some way. Religion is always wrong. The fact is... They needed to know that, they, that there are consequences for resisting God's draw. There will always be, and that's the point of that one particular verse. There will always be consequences to resisting God's calling upon our lives. Look at what the following verses say. Look at verse 6. The subtitle here is, Judgment is Coming. Judgment is Coming. It says, He will render to each one according to his works. He will render to each one according to his works. What's he saying there? He's saying that judgment is coming. That one day we will all give an account. He's saying that it matters how you and I live. 
It matters, generally speaking, how mankind lives today with response to God. Because God is always calling, and therefore, we're gonna, He's going to hold us accountable one day. For whether we receive Him or not, man will eventually give an account. And I know that it's virtually impossible today, sitting in this room, or in any way, shape, or form, for you and I to determine how many atheists or agnostics exist in the world today. But we know there are many, right? We know there are many. There's going to come a time, one day, when they will stand before God to give an account of their lives. And there will be no excuse. This point even applies to you and I in the church. I thank God for grace. We said that once before. We say that all the time. We are a church that believes in grace. It's in our name. And in the name of our fellowship as well. Caris Fellowship. Tim, you know, I just heard him. I heard him. You didn't hear that, but I heard him. Tim said, that's not how you pronounce that. You, you didn't hear that, but I did. That's not how you pronounce grace in, in, in Greek. Charis, right? What's how you say it? I'm good? Okay. <laughs> Look at, um, turning your Bibles. Keep your finger right where you are and turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4. I want you to see this. And the point is that we will all stand before God to give an account of our lives. The world that resists, that forsakes, that denounces, that wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ will give an account. But you and I in the church, we, would have given a, we, we are going to give an account as well. I'm thankful that it's not going to be before the white, great white throne judgment, right? But it's going to be judgment nonetheless because God wants us to be more like him every single day. And our failures this side of heaven determine our rewards later. Now, I don't know about you, but I want, I want all I can get. <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter 4. You there? Say amen. amen. Look at verses 4 through 8. I'm going to read them. Verses 4 through 8. We're talking about sanctification here. Our responsibility this side of heaven. It says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Right there, right off the bat. Look at me. Look at me. There's a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever right there. So far. And what Paul is saying to the... What he said to the Thessalonians was that you have to be different. You have to be different. It's not about being perfect. But it's about truly representing Jesus Christ this side of heaven. Not to be saved... But because we, but because we are saved. Where did I leave off at? <clears throat> I don't have the verses listed. I copied and pasted. I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin again. <laughs> it says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. He's just referring to the context of the text. We're not going to get into that. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The point is that God wants us to pursue more of him because we are saved. There's a responsibility. Go back to Romans chapter 2. 
Look at verse, verse 7. Actually, I'm going to read it together with verse 6. We're going to read through to verse 11. Are you there? It says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Amazing. You notice how Paul, he repeated the same thing over. What he said in verse 8, he repeated in verse 9. That's a part of the diatribe in his letter. He repeats things over and over. He reiterates. He gives us the same things from a different perspective in hopes that we understand. Much like me. Some of you are like, why is he repeating himself? Right? I know. I know. I know who you are. I know. Why don't he he just get on with it? Why does he keep repeating himself? I got an issue. Maybe it's because I read Romans too often. I don't know. But, But notice. Notice a couple of things that stand out here. Number one. It says that those who live righteously will inherit eternal life. So there's a distinction between peoples in the world. You have a group of people who are going to inherit eternal life. Why? Because of their service to God. Because of their consecration, their commitment. Because of the fact that God saved by faith. But there's another group. A group who ends up in eternal damnation because they chose to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But not just there, it doesn't stop there. Because he refers to, you can infer it from those verses, the quality of life you and I are to experience this side of heaven. Those of us who accept Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the sky is going to be blue over our heads every single day. The sky is not blue over my head right now. It's just not. But I got faith and I know whose I am. I know my identity in Jesus Christ and I don't live according to my circumstances or anything else for that matter. I live by the identity that Jesus Christ has given to me today. How about you? How about you? Amen, amen, amen. Uh, we're, not al- we're not supposed to allow our circumstances or people, places and things to determine our identity. Jesus does. The cross does. And so... The second thing, I I mentioned this already, here I go, I'm going to repeat myself, is that those who live unrighteously will be condemned. The quote is in the text, but for those who are, what does it say? But for those who are self-seeking, there will be wrath and fury. He reiterates this in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 speaks of condemnation. To those who reject Jesus, essentially. And in verse 10, it speaks of a wonderful future with God for those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And and listen, I know that it's going to be what I'm going to be, what I'm going to say next, or at least try to say next. I, I know that it's a prelude to what Paul the Apostle expounds upon later in the book. But what did Paul mean by his use of the phrases, well-doing. Look at your text in verse 7. He uses the phrase well-doing in verse 7 
And in verse 8, he uses the phrase, self-seeking. What did he mean by that? I inferred salvation into the text by way of Christ Jesus, but that's not what Paul said. It's certainly what he meant, right? I'm not trying to confuse you, really, I'm not. But he uses a, a unique set of words. He says, those who are, who, oh, let's read the verse 7. Verse 7. It says, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. What's he saying? Is well-doing an indication that we are saved by doing good? No, in no way, shape, or form. In no way, shape, or form. But does, does it mean that our good deeds, our actions, or our lifestyle, does it mean that it's insignificant? No, not at all. Verse 8 speaks of those who will be condemned. Correct? And it says, and it says, um, let me, the, it says, it uses the phrase self-seeking. How significant is that one particular phrase in that context? It's extremely significant. Look at verses 12 through 16. What's that? <laughs> oh, he's reading out loud. I got you. I got you. Don't mind me, Jose. I'm easily distracted. He said, man, this guy, really? Always up in my face. What verses did I say? 12 through 16. Okay. It says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. What a tongue twister, really? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Wow. There's no excuses. The context is the theme that Paul continues to repeat in this one particular chapter. There's no excuse. The Gentile who wasn't given the Mosaic law will ultimately be, con- be condemned if he doesn't acknowledge God's written law in the heart. It's one of the things that, 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 that sticks out to me when I read those particular verses. The Gentile who was not given the Mosaic law is going to be judged by the standard of God written in the heart. No one is without excuse. And the Jew who attempts to live according to the standard of the legal system, or the Mosaic law is going to be judged accordingly. How many know that you cannot keep the law perfectly? Paul the Apostle was trying to reason with them. He says, listen to me, your, 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 your life, your actions, your service to God by way of the standard of the legal system, it's in vain. You need this Jesus I'm trying to present to you. You need him. You are resisting him. God is not willing that any should perish. And as such, he has placed all his efforts in his son, Christ Jesus. Verse 16. says, God judges the secrets of men 
by Christ Jesus. In the previous verses before these 12 through 16, the point of that, remember the phrase well-doing and self-seeking? No, we're not saved by, by works. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Anybody, anybody, anybody. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we know we're not saved by works, but isn't it necessary to live out what we believe to be true from the Holy Scriptures? What was James' argument in James chapter 2? Exactly that. Works are necessary because when you consider my life and if I make the declaration out of my mouth that I know Jesus, that I'm a follower of Jesus, and yet I'm living like a devil, what does that say about me? Am I truly saved? You, you, you better question that. Right or wrong? Come on, work with me now. You have to question that because my lifestyle, the works in my life, are what truly determine whether I'm in the faith or not. Paul the Apostle was trying to present that to one of the churches. Where he said, he says, test yourselves. He says, test yourselves to determine if you are indeed in the faith. Because there was a whole lot of stuff going on in the church. And he challenged them to test themselves. Just like these individuals here. We're not necessarily too keen on this new Message, this gospel that was being preached, that was in their minds totally contrary to their traditions. And what's this guy saying? They were self-seeking. They were self-seeking. They were choosing to live their life according to a standard outside of the standard of Jesus Christ. And Paul the Apostle, he was, he was. He was swinging or raising up the warning signs, the warning signs, the warning signs. I was driving one time uh, in Philly, uh, back, back east, even though I was heavily involved in the church, I was a truck driver by trade. So I was used to being out in the middle of the night. My shift, my first trucking job started, my shift started at 2 a.m., 2 a.m. How many know what, what construction warning signs look like? How many know, how many know? Yeah, they are. What color? Let me ask you, what color are they? Yeah, they're bright orange. Reflector orange, right? They're bright orange. And I remember one time I was driving up the, the Pocono Mountains in, in, in northern Pennsylvania. And I was out there by myself, by myself. And guess what, y'all? It was snowing. And I really couldn't see anything in front of me. And I had, you probably never heard of this type of tire, but they're called super singles. How many heard of that? Super singles, one man, one, two men, they're called, they're called super singles. Rather than a tandem of tires on, on either side of the axle, two tires are necessary, right? Because if one tire ruptures, the other one can sustain the weight. But when you're hauling gasoline like I was, you cannot afford to have two tires on an axle. I know that you got them, you, you Californians are backwards out here. You have two tires on a, on a gasoline tank because there should be one. There should be one, one solid, extra solid rubber tire. Because that one tire can sustain the weight above it. If you've got two tires and one, I know I'm off on a tangent already. I'm, I come, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I promise you. I promise you I'm coming back. Anyway, anyway, I was driving up the mountains and it was snowing, right? 
and there were warning signs. I was tired. I was fatigued. And I could barely see down the highway. The ascent wasn't too bad. It was really slow because of the 80,000 80, pounds of weight on that particular grade. It turned that weight into about 120,000 pounds. And so I, was, I had to climb that mountain in fifth gear. It was 10-speed manual transmission. And I had to climb the mountain in fifth gear really slow, less than 15 miles per hour. And it took me forever to climb that mountain. So I wasn't afraid. But things took a turn for the worse on the other side of the mountain. Because now that now I had to do whatever it is I could to hold the weight back from descending, running away down that mountain. And it was snowing. And now there are warning signs. The construction warning signs. What do you suppose would have happened to me if I had ignored those warning signs? I would have killed myself. Multiple lanes coming down the one lane. Construction off to the side. Construction workers, you can barely see from the distance. I couldn't even see five seconds ahead of me. And normally, the rule of thumb when you're driving a tractor trailer, and when you're driving a car, by the way, should be 15 seconds ahead. You should be 15 seconds ahead. That's the rule of thumb. Smith system. And so I had to reduce my speed. And what happens next is that now my tail is fishtailing. The back of the trailer is fishtailing because that was hard on the brakes. I had to pay attention to the warning signs. Got to apply that to what we just finished reading here. Because this is the challenge. I'm done. This is the challenge of the text. Religion will always, always interfere with God's fundamental calling for our lives. He wants to save our souls. He wants to... He wants people who do not know Jesus Christ personally to see, to see their need for him. He's raising up all the signs, all the warning signs. You're, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. And the Holy Spirit uses Paul the Apostle in this one particular passage to raise up the warning flags to the religious Jews in Rome. The theme is no longer the same in the next chapter. But that's the case here. There was, a, there was a problem that had arisen in Rome with regard to this, this group of individuals. And they were interfering with the gospel, the fundamentals of the gospel. Not only were they not accepting, but they were also interfering the gospel working in the lives of the people around them, namely the Gentiles. And Paul the Apostle is like trying to draw their attention. You're moving in the wrong direction. Perhaps there's somebody here this morning that is moving in the wrong direction. And you don't know Jesus Christ. You know personally that God has been trying to get your attention. If you wait for a particular feeling, a particular experience, a particular emotion, a particular circumstance, it's never going to happen. Because our decision for Jesus Christ should never be based upon any of those things. It's an application of faith, or as Ron would put it, an application of trust upon the truth of the Word of God. Amen? And I think it behooves every single one of us here in this place to make sure we know Jesus. We need to turn around. 
But there's also a challenge for the believer here as well. And we talked about that briefly. And it has to do with the cleansing or the sanctification that needs to take place in our lives. And I said it before. I said it many times before. And I'm going to say it again. I'm going to always say it. Because I can't afford to have anybody misunderstand me. We pursue sanctification not because we want to be saved, but because we, but because we are saved. God's people are supposed to look different from the world. And I'm not talking about your clothing. At least not at this moment. I'm not addressing those things. God's people are supposed to be different, fundamentally different, right or wrong. The standard that you and I are supposed to live by is not the standard of this world. John goes into that in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. When he talks about the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life have nothing to do with those things. What happens to us when we entertain the system of this world, or a standard outside of the standard of the Bible, we compromise ourselves. We water down the effect of the gospel in our lives, and we end up grieving the Holy Spirit. Right or wrong? That's what Paul's saying in the text. It's all there. It's all there. Bow your heads with me, please. Can I get the worship team to come up? Bow your heads with me, please. Everybody, nobody look around. Nobody look around. Please indulge me for a moment. Close your eyes. Bow your heads, please. I'm not going to ask you to come out of your pew. I'm not going to do that. But I know this, there are a number of individuals here this morning who do not know Jesus personally. This is between you and God. This is between you and God. You came in here today and you know. Your conscience is flaring. Even right now. You can't even contain yourself. I I know, because I've been there. And the Holy Spirit is ministering to you. He wants you to come to faith. He's not introducing religion. He's not offering you religion, rather. He's asking you to know Him personally, so that you can spend the rest of your life with Him. It's never been about religion. Do you want to know Jesus? If so, I want you to pray a prayer in your heart with me. And mean it. It's not, about, it's not about you and I. It's about you and Jesus. I know sometimes we want people to get out of the pews and come running up front. I, that's all good. I'd like to see that too. But I gave, my heart by, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ by myself in a prison cell in 1989. I know you can get saved here today. Sitting there, listening to me, and praying in your heart. Say, dear Jesus, I recognize today that I am a sinner. And that I need you in my life. I need you in my life, Lord Jesus. Please come into my heart. Come into my life. Take over, take control. Become my Lord and Savior. Forgive all of my sin. Forgive all of my sin. All of my transgressions. All of my wrongdoings. I've lived a life in direct opposition to you. But I choose not to do it anymore. Today I give my life to you. Today I give my soul to you. And I ask you, Jesus, to give me the strength to follow you for the rest of my life. 
Now, I know there are believers here today who are struggling. There are believers here today who are perhaps living with compromise. And you know there are certain things in your life that should not exist. You know there are certain places you're going, certain things you're saying, certain things you're doing, certain friends you're entertaining. There's a lifestyle. There's a secrecy that exists. There's a challenge for you too. God is asking you graciously, lovingly, because you are a child of God, to make a change, to take a stance today against some of those things. Pray this prayer with me. That is you. Dear Jesus, I know that I need to change in some areas. And I'm I'm inviting you to strengthen me in these areas. Please help me, Lord Jesus, to denounce certain things, certain people, certain places. And help me to make it a strong habit, a lifestyle, to read your word and to pray as often as I possibly can. I want to be more like you, Lord Jesus. And today I take a stand. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your presence. We thank you so much for speaking into our lives. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. And we give you all the praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people say, why don't you stand with me as we, as we sing this last song? Whoa. Too soon, brother. Too soon. Praise God. Why don't you stand with me? <laughs> Let's sing this last song. Praise God. Lord, I need you. Can you start it all over again? Thank you.
for God in your life this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, we want to invite you to come and join us upstairs for some food. I'm just going to have a word of prayer now over the food. And that way, when you get up there. You can start eating. God, we just want to say thanks again for this morning. God, thanks for meeting us here. Thanks for your spirit uh, that works in us and around us and through us. Uh, God, thanks for never giving up on us. God, thanks for desiring to be intimate with each one of us. God, what a great message this morning from uh, from Romans. God, the, the idea that we, of course, are sinners. God, you have solved that problem. And God, we need to give our lives to you. We need to live lives that honor you. God, help us not to live the life of this world. But, God, to keep our eyes focused on you this morning. God, we love you. We want to pray for the food. God, thanks for the fellowship that we're going to have in just a few minutes. God, thanks for our graduate. Thanks for Evelyn and for her hard work. Uh, God, thanks for just uh, allowing us to celebrate her this morning. And, uh, God, we just pray that you bless the food. Thanks for those that have been busy preparing it. God, we want to give you all the honor, all the glory, all the praise. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good day, church.